Hi, I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech and the vision that it has for America and the enduring relevance of that vision for the times we face today when many people are questioning whether or not progress toward equality, toward liberty, and toward equal citizenship is advanced by the principles of Martin Luther King Jr. in his speech, or whether we need a new way, a different way, or whether, in fact, King is in favor of that different way. We really see the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. being contested today in a way we haven't seen before. So we're going to explore that question, that very important question of the meaning of King's I Have a Dream speech for the difficulties and challenges that America faces today. Joining us is Professor Peter Myers. Uh, Peter is an old friend of the Ashbrook Center. He is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. He received his bachelor's from Northwestern University and his PhD from Loyola University of Chicago. Um, at University of Wisconsin, he teaches a number of courses on American political thought, on American politics and constitutional law. He also teaches for Ashbrook <clears throat> in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. I think he's taught courses there on Martin Luther King Jr., on Frederick Douglass, race inequality, and the civil rights era. So spanning a, a lot of topics that are very relevant for today's conversation. He's also a, a well-known author and published some very important articles and books. Uh, an early book of his goes all the way back, I think, to his doctoral dissertation on John Locke called Our Only Star and Compass. For those of you who are interested in the political thought of John Locke, I cannot recommend it highly enough to you. Great book, Our Only Star and Compass. More recently, he's published a book on Frederick Douglass, the great black abolitionist of the 19th century called Frederick Douglass, Race and Rebirth and the Rebirth of American Liberalism. And even most recently, he has very generously um, edited a volume for Ashbrook, as you can see here entitled Race and Civil Rights. It's part of our core documents collection. And we, are, we aim to complete this for use by students, teachers, and citizens across the country. And I think it's actually our most recent volume. So Peter, thank you very much for joining us today and for taking on that project for Ashbrook. Uh, it's my pleasure, actually. I, it's the first time I've, I've been an editor. I, I enjoyed it. So uh, maybe I'll do some more of it. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> very good. We might, take, we might hold you to that. <laughs> very good. Well, so your, your interests have really ranged in teaching for us in the 19th century and the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Particularly connected, though, obviously, your theme of your scholarship has a lot to do with race in America mm -hmm. and the questions and problems associated with America's founding principles of equality and liberty and recognizing and realizing those through the course of American history. And probably nobody rec uh, represents that struggle in the 20th century more than Martin Luther King Jr. The legacy of King is in question today. Maybe in a way, if I can just offer my own opinion, that has not been true for decades. Some people argue, you know, as you know, that to be in favor of equality and civil rights now, you have to be what people call anti-racist. 
and embrace things like critical race theory, especially the idea that America is a systemically racist country. But then other people argue that anti-racism and CRT as it's called are really a betrayal of the civil rights movement and the vision of, of MLK. So let's, maybe we could just start by getting clear on some terms. When people talk about critical race theory, CRT, what do they mean? Well, that's a good question. And uh, uh, it, it, it itself is a subject of some contention. So let me try to summarize just quickly and possibly, uh, possibly I'll, I'll simplify a bit too much, but, but I think what you see in critical race theory starts with this idea that there's a, there's a certain claim to realism. Um, I mean, in, in the self-understanding of people who sympathize with this view. And what that means is that if we understand properly what law really is and what it really does, then we understand that this is the critical part of the critical race theory. Then we understand that the law really isn't about justice. Um, what the law is, is an expression or an instrument of power. Um, it serves ruling interests. Uh, if uh, you know, our, uh, anybody in our audience here is students, if they're Ashbrook students, I'm sure they're familiar with uh, the argument of Plato's Republic. Uh, I mean, critical race theory is sometimes, uh, uh, is sometimes described by especially adversaries as, uh, as a kind of neo-Marxist view. And there's some truth to that. But the basic idea dates all the way to the Republic, if not, uh, well, and, and maybe before that. I mean, the position of Thrasymachus in, the, in, the, in, the, in book one of Plato's Republic is the basic idea that justice is the advantage of the stronger, or rather law is the advantage of the ruling class. So start there. And then what you have in CRT is the idea that, that law is not a neutral thing. That treats people simply equally under it, even if it is facially neutral. It is an instrument of the dominant group, and dominant groups are defined. This is the race part, of course. Um, according to critical race theory, dominant groups are defined by racial identity. Um, and so, what this means in practice is the idea that you just alluded to that racism in the US especially, is systemic. It is rooted in a constitutional system and a system of laws of long standing. This doesn't mean that, according to critical race theorists, white Americans are by intention and sentiment uh, you know, white supremacists necessarily. I mean, in the sense that they're, uh, that they're, that they're bigots in the opinions they actually hold. Um, what it means instead is that the effects, the outcomes of the laws and the policies that are in place tend to advantage whites systematically, privilege is the word we use, of course, and disadvantage people of color and primarily, primarily blacks systematically. All right. Further thought kind of pursuant to that is that the outcomes themselves, the disparities in socioeconomic goods or ills by race, um, itself themselves, the outcomes themselves signify unjust discrimination. And so that means that equality 
now has to be reconceived as what they call equity. And equity means, in effect, um, redistributing outcomes in order to reach a racial proportionality, a proportionality of socioeconomic goods and ills across, across racial groups. And so that in turn means that the idea of colorblind or facially neutral uh, law and policy is likely unjust. Uh, and that in other words, the means for redistributing outcomes pretty much have to involve compensatory race classifications. Right. One, one further thought that I think might help to understand the, the present controversy about, about CRT. You know, this is, as uh, some of its defenders say, this is initially an academic doctrine. It, 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 uh, uh, it originates in, uh, in the thinking of, uh, of a, a couple of well-known, really one in particular law professor in the uh, 1970s and 1980s. Um, but a, uh, one of the elements of its original claim to realism was its pessimism. The law professor in question is a guy named Derek Bell, um, who's famous also for saying racism in America is permanent. We're really not going to undo it. Uh, and so there's a certain pessimism about the original iterations of, uh, of CRT. But in the present generation of CRT, there's really not that pessimism. There's a kind of activism uh, about it. This especially in the work of, uh, of, of Ibram Kendi, who's the, the, figure of the, the figure of the moment. And what the activism translates into is the idea that if we're going to have a replacement regime of compensatory race classifications, then we need to control civic education. People need to be re-educated, you know, to accept this. And so you now have this big battle over the teaching of U.S. history in, uh, uh, in, at the K through 12 level, especially. Um, CRT is especially, I called it a law school doctrine a second ago, but what it really is now is a doctrine in uh, schools of education across, uh, across the universities of the country who are training teachers who will carry this message forth to, uh, to students. So that's the, you know, that's uh, maybe a little bit windy uh, summation of the, of, of the CRT controversy. Well, that's really helpful because obviously one of the figures sort of um, about which there is this dispute is Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the CRT anti-racist and then those opposed to that, both in a way claim MLK, right? Um, and obviously King is most famously known for his I Have a Dream speech in 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, which is often portrayed, I think, by a lot of folks and understood by a lot of folks as sort of containing all of his political thinking on America, on race, on civil rights and equality. But um, you have argued elsewhere, I know, that King's uh, thought on America and civil rights developed over time. He started out in, in the civil rights movement as a very young man and grew and changed probably over time in some of his thinking up to 1963 in the famous speech and then after 1963. So just, just for our listeners and for my sake, our sakes, take us back to the early Martin Luther King Jr. We wanna understand where King fits in our current moment, but I think to do that, we need to go back and understand King himself a little bit. Take us back to his uh, foray into public life and his understanding of what of America and the goals of the civil rights movement. 
I'll, I'll, I'll begin with a bit of a parenthesis. There's a, uh, there's a bit of modesty and self-effacement hiding in your, in your question, since one of the places I've argued those things is a very fine volume edited by you uh, about uh, the history of American political thought, which everybody should, which everybody should look at. Um, but to your, to your question, uh, the, I've, I've changed my mind a little bit over time about this and the nature of the change will come out in, our, in the rest of our discussion, I think. But let's say this about the early period of King's thinking. Um, the very first speech he ever gave that we know of was as a high school student. Uh, it was a, uh, an oratory competition, which he was the winner of. And uh, the speech, this is in 1944, so King is a 15-year-old, and, uh, and the speech is entitled The Negro and the Constitution. And it is not really, you wouldn't expect it to be, an exercise in, uh, in constitutional interpretation. And it's also really not a discussion of the founding. King's understanding of the Constitution in this respect, I mean, even as a 15-year-old, seems to be a lot like the understanding that Thurgood Marshall uh, uh, explicated in 1987 when he gave a bicentennial speech that criticized the founding and essentially, I mean, revered the Constitution, but Civil War amendments onward was when the Constitution really began in earnest for, for Marshall. There's some of that, uh, I think, implicit in, uh, in this, this speech by the young king. But there is a brief remark on the founding that is perfectly consonant, I think, with what he says. The whole argument really actually is very much consonant with what he says in the, in the dream speech. And that means what he says is the nation was founded on principles of freedom and equality. And he calls slavery a paradox, uh, which may seem to us obvious, slavery inconsistent with the ideas of freedom and equality. But there is, in fact, a line of scholarship today that, that denies that, um, that extends an argument that some slaveholders used to make that slavery was actually supportive of Republican government uh, and that freedom and equality, meaning Republican government for whites was very unlikely without uh, racialized slavery. And that's not King's position. King's position is the founding is a promise of freedom and equality for all. And that's his understanding, certainly through 1963. In a way, I think it's his understanding throughout his entire, his entire adult life. In the dream speech, you know, of course, much more famously, he calls the founding, meaning the two main founding documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, a promissory note, uh, and takes the position that the Declaration of Independence, when it says all men are created equal, means all human beings are created can I, equal. Can I just, sure, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, for you reference that for the sake of our, our listeners, can I read that paragraph? I think it's the fourth Please, paragraph. Sure, yeah, yeah. Because you're saying he had this view very early on as a young man. He's 15 years old in 1944. Mm -hmm. And then um, 19 years later, um, still a relatively young man, but 19 years later, after a long experience in the civil rights movement, he says this, and I'm reading this from our 50 core documents book um, put out by Ashbrook. He says this, so we have come here to the Lincoln Memorial today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we have come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our Republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note 
to which every American was to fall heir. This note was the promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What does he mean by calling it a promissory note? Well, it's, um, I, yeah, the, I, I, people sometimes in, uh, in academic discussions use the term, it's a, it's a less graceful term, aspirational to describe the, the constitution, which I think in some sense was the way that Lincoln read the constitution was the way that Frederick Douglass, in a little different way, read the Constitution, meaning that the, the Constitution is written at a time when the, the country inherits slavery from its colonial uh, existence. And I don't mean that the country is simply passive in its relation to, in its relation to slavery. There are supporters of slavery at the, at the founding um, who, were, who were bent on defending it. Um, and so there are compromises with slavery written into the constitution. Um, but the, the understanding held by Lincoln, let's say, and which is also the understanding I think here implied in King's dream speech is that, well, as King said as a 15 year old, it's a paradox, meaning slavery is an anomaly. It doesn't really belong in this system, which is dedicated to, uh, you know, to promoting the, the, the blessings of liberty for everybody and, you know, ourselves and our posterity, says the, says the preamble. And, uh, and so I think what it means is that the promise is that as soon as prudently possible, slavery and institutionalized inequality get abolished. Uh, and King in the dream speech is frustrated with the pace of change, of course, uh, says, look, it's, you know, it's now, I mean, it's not an accident. This is 1963. He says, uh, you know, the first part of, uh, of the speech, he says, we're standing here 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and we're standing at the Lincoln Memorial, which is not, which is also not an accident, uh, that Lincoln's work as emancipator is unfinished, uh, even 100 years later. Um, and the work of the American Revolution in the promise of freedom and equality for all under our jurisdiction is also incomplete. And uh, the civil rights movement in one of King's books, uh, Why We Can't Wait, which is a description of, uh, which is an account of um, essentially of the, the Birmingham campaign earlier in 1963. This is what King says. He says, the civil rights movement is the third American revolution and it's the completion of the American Revolution. Um, it's, the, it's, it's the finishing up of the work that was left undone, but it was promised. And so King, King does not reject the founding. He does, not, uh, he does not think that America was corrupt from the beginning. Um, he thinks that the founding is, uh, you know, as I say, is a promise of justice and needs to be fulfilled. So the argument of the I have a dream speech What's the goal if, if he says we are we stand as sort of the third wave um, after the founders and Lincoln in the fulfillment of the American promise, mm -hmm. the promise of America, completion of the American founding, really. Um, what's his understanding of the, the aims and goals of the civil rights movement here in this speech? What's it what's it what does he want it to do? What does he want it to accomplish? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. There's there are complications, I think, um, lurking here. Um, 
what what I want to suggest uh, about the 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 two really famous documents, let's say, that King produces, the dream speech and uh, and the letter from Birmingham Jail, which maybe we'll say a thing or two about in a minute. Uh, the dream speech is about, as you suggest, ends, purposes, and the letter is more about means, you know, methods to achieve those purposes. Honestly, it took me a while to appreciate the dream speech. Um, I think everybody upon hearing it, especially when you actually hear it, um, is moved by it. And so sees in it um, a really inspiring piece of rhetoric. Um, when I say that it took me a while to, to, to get further than that, I wasn't really sure what there was in substance beyond a relatively simple idea. There's a promise, the promise is unfulfilled, we're protesting and now we're gonna fulfill it. Um, but there's, there's actually a lot. Uh, I think some of it is more implicit than explicit. But there's a, one of the ways of seeing it is to say that there's a big cast of characters in the dream speech. Uh, there are, I mean, I think that implicitly there are the, the, the great protesters, Douglas and, uh, and W.B. Du Bois, Frederick Douglas and W.B. Du Bois are there. The, the great abolitionists are there. I mean, when King says, he uses the phrase, the urgency of now, there's a certain Garrisonian spirit in that, uh, you know, uh, um, um, reminding of William Lloyd Garrison. The great founders are there, of course, uh, and especially Jefferson uh, with the Declaration of Independence. Lincoln is there, perhaps above all, and biblical figures, you know, Old Testament prophets uh, and apostles from the New Testament and Jesus himself, of course. But the argument as to, I mean, at one level is simple, as I said a second ago. Uh, you know, the promise is unfulfilled, let's fulfill it. And the promise is freedom and equality. At um, a little more particular level, then the freedom and equality means we need to undo unjust segregation, especially segregation and, and some policies that subordinate Blacks continuing into the 1960s. What constitutes segregation? What exactly needs to be undone? Is it just the, um, you know, the, 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 the separating of people so that they can't vote, so that they can't go to, uh, they, they can't enjoy you know, public accommodations of various kinds more equally. Um, is it equal employment opportunity? Is it a kind of equality beyond that? There, King suggests positions about these that are not th those kinds of questions that, um, are not fully developed in the dream speech, but but will be as uh, in uh, in the the activ the activism that uh, uh, that he that he pursues going forward. Well, one of the things you can clearly see in his speech um, is he, he the theme of hope. He yeah. mentions hope a number of yeah. times. It he 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 is hopeful, and he seems to be hopeful. He certainly wants to inspire hope in the the people who are listening to the speech that this is not a lost cause, that there might be setbacks, but we can really fulfill this dream of equal, uh, of freedom and equal citizenship to all people. Um, what's the cause? And because I'm particularly taken by the point you made, which is the, origin, the originators of, of, of critical race theory in law schools 
were pessimistic about the possibility of progress, that America could ever live up to principles of equality and liberty for all. King seems optimistic. What's the source of his optimism in this speech? Yeah, that's, uh, I, think, I think there are a couple of dimensions of the answer to that. Um, there's a, you might say, there's a secular dimension and there's a religious dimension, I think. Uh, I, think the, I think the secular dimension has to do with what we were just talking about. I think um, King's understanding of the basic meaning of the country um, is supportive of a certain optimism. This is an argument that you see in Frederick Douglass also. The founding principles are, of course, always disputed, but they're a part of our historical memory. You know, there, there, there is a kind of national conscience that is formed by the words of the Declaration of Independence, the promise of, uh, of liberty and equality in the Constitution. And that's important, that people want to be patriotic, people want to be law-abiding, people tend to have a certain reverence for, I mean, I think this was much more true in 1963, maybe than it is now, but people tend to have a certain reverence for the founding of the Constitution. And, and this, can be, this can be appealed to. So I think that's part of it. But that also, for an obvious you know, reason, is, is incomplete. I mean, that would have been true all along, but all along, this, this set of injustices persisted. So you could say, I think, and, and, and this is also I, uh, um, a part of the argument King makes in his books and why we can't wait, that, yeah, Americans and all human beings are creatures of conscience in part, but they're also creatures of interest. Um, and because we're creatures of interest, that's not just material interest, but that's pride and prejudice also. Um, the white supremacist regime is not going to go away spontaneously. Uh, he says, you know, power does not surrender itself voluntarily. And so what we need to do, and there's a certain um, call to do this when he says, you know, go back to your communities. This is what he means. What we need to do is to design protests creatively. Uh, and that means protests designed in such a way to move people both by their interests and by their, by their conscience. Um, so that's the, I think there's a secular dimension of the argument. And there's also, uh, you know, King is a minister. Uh, I mean, he's, he's Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. There's a providential faith. The arc of the moral universe is long. Um, you know, he quotes the, the, the abolitionist Theodore Parker. Um, King thinks that, you know, God is on our side. You know, God is just, God has a providential design. Uh, the moral, the, the arc of the moral universe might be long. It might require a lot of patience. It has required a lot of patience, um, but it, but it bends toward justice. Uh, you know, the, the outcome, I think, is uh, is ordained in King's mind. And one of the things he seems to make clear, and you you already referenced his letter from Birmingham Jail, which is 1963, also mm -hmm. probably his other and maybe second most famous work, and it's a pretty interesting. Um, writing in philosophy and theology and sort of justifying um, nonviolent um, civil disobedience. But uh, one of the things that he seems to argue there is that um, the methods do matter. And yeah. the methods, as you said, the methods do matter and that the ultimate goal 
is integration, not just desegregation. And to get to integration, you need to follow this path of nonviolent civil disobedience when it's called for. Talk a little bit more about King's vision of integration, because I think ultimately we want to get to, a, I want to get to a question of, does that seem to be the ultimate goal of those advocating uh, the Ibram Kendi's, the anti-racist view, do they share that same ultimate goal of integration? But first, let's say, what, what does King mean by integration as opposed to just desegregation? Well, the, the phrase that he uses a lot um, is the beloved community. And here, I think uh, you, you get to something important in King, that uh, King's understanding of justice is, in his mind, I think, not and this, and this, I think, also um, will will imply a certain degree of divergence from the vision of the founders. That I think the vision of the founders is essentially a classical liberal vision. I don't mean to say it's John Locke pure and simple, but it's but it's largely you know Locke and and. Uh, um, and, and so that means, you know, natural rights and limited constitutional government and government by consent and so forth. Um, but in King, who believes in most or all of that, um, there's something more. There's a King wants an America that's really a community of friends that's united in a kind of uh, in a kind of love, and, and that can sound kind of sappy and, and idealistic. He um, doesn't mean that everybody, you know, loves one another in the ordinary sense or even actually likes one another all that much, but there's a concept of love called philia, um, in which one recognizes the humanity of others and devotes oneself to their, to their well-being, and you're attached to them by a kind of moral sympathy, and uh, and that's, you know, King is communitarian in that respect. And one of the things that means is that King is not going to be completely satisfied with the regime of equal rights that was established, let's say, by the Civil Rights Act uh, and the Voting Rights Act of 1964 and 1965. Those are momentous achievements. They're hugely important achievements. But the regime of equal rights is going to be not quite enough. The fully integrated society is going to be a much more egalitarian society uh, in which the and especially, you know, here is King as Christian minister again, especially animated by a concern for the least advantaged, you know, and so King's last years are really devoted to uh, a campaign to try to lift the condition of, uh, of impoverished people in the US. So integration means economic integration, as well as just you know, kids going to the same school together and accessing public accommodations together and so forth. I'm Chad Kiefer, Director of Philanthropy and Strategic Partnerships here at Ashburn. At its heart, America's story is about the lives of patriots who have given their last full measure of devotion to preserve and protect what it means to be an American. But the tragic truth is that the American story is being rewritten as one of oppression and despair. Back in 1776, the founders took a chance when they created a new government built on principles of liberty. They took a chance on America. Now I'm challenging you to do the same. 
Your gift to Ashbrook today reaches students, teachers, and citizens across the country, helping them to understand why America is worthy of their devotion. With so many forces eroding our history and taking away from our principles, isn't it time we give America a chance? Your investment is encouraged now more than ever. Please visit us today at ashbrook.org backslash support. King obviously had critics in his own day, both critics from uh, those who didn't want any of this change at all, the, so the segregationists of the world, for example, but he also had critics on the other side. We think maybe most prominently of Malcolm X, but after 1964, uh, the, the black power movement to some degree is critical of King. Um, mm -hmm. How did King respond to critics like Malcolm X and the black power movement who said, you're naive, the, 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 uh, the system really is systemically racist, or as Malcolm X said, I'm not an American, I am a victim of America, mm -hmm. um, or that the system will not change by appealing to its conscience, there needs to be force and even violence. How did he respond to those critics of himself in his own day? Yeah, that's, uh, that's very important. Um, you know, we regard the civil rights movement. I, well, maybe I shouldn't say it quite so broadly. I was going to say, you know, people do tend largely to regard the civil rights movement as, as a unity, you know, as kind of a single thing. And it really wasn't. The, the, the civil rights movement, even the mainstream part of it, of which King is a part, has various kinds of factional disagreements. Um, and then... It also, as you say, has critics. It has critics whom we would call today black conservatives, the, the Reverend Joseph Jackson, the uh, president of the National Baptist Convention was an example of those. Uh, and on the other hand, on the other side or one other side of it, it's got more radical critics, black nationalist kinds of critics like Malcolm X, led by Malcolm X, I should say. And so Malcolm is the most important of the critics, and he's a critic of long standing, you know, from the 50s, from the 50s onward. But Malcolm is a leader in the nation of Islam, which is a relative fringe in the, you know, in especially the earlier 1960s. Um, and then, of course, Malcolm himself is gone after uh, February of 1965, uh, when he gets murdered in, uh, in, in New York. But Malcolm's influence both lives on and becomes, in a way, much more powerful and mainstream through the, the Black Power argument. Black Power is a, a, an outgrowth of one of those um, factional disagreements that, uh, that I was alluding to a minute ago. The, the, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee starts out in 1960 as a kind of formalization, organized institutionalization of, uh, of the, the sit-in movement that began in February of 1960, which was, which was more or less spontaneous action by college students. Uh, so they organize into SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. This is the organization John Lewis was the leader of for a while. And in the beginning, they're, they're very much like King's uh, they take an approach much like King's in the sense that it's, of course, nonviolent. They're a little more daring with regard to, a little more confrontational with regard to the kinds of protests. But it's, it's, um, 
it's continuous with uh, with King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But beginning in the middle 1960s, uh, SNCC gets radicalized, comes under new leadership. The figure of Stokely Carmichael emerges, uh, and that turns into a Black Power organization. Stokely Carmichael initiates the Black Power argument. Um, I shouldn't say the argument, but he initiates the slogan and the and the and the appeal in in 1966. So, how does King respond to this? Partly sympathetically, King wants to be a unifier always, right? So he wants to see what is good, um, what can be defended, what can be owned with regard to the the Black Power movement. Um, and he's also and he's also a critic, uh, and so what he thinks is about black power that it's okay to try to emphasize that we can be powerful in shaping our own destiny. You know, if we want to accentuate the economic power we have, the political power we have uh, to bring to bear on the injustices we're concerned with, that's all to the good. Um, the black power advocates were quite angry emotionally. Uh, and to a limited degree, King wants to say, well, no, I mean, King wants to say the anger is perfectly justified. Um, the expressions of it, we can, we can argue about. The criticism is, um, uh, in general terms, that there really isn't a constructive program, that the, the Black Power argument makes a profession of realism that's kind of like what I ascribed to the critical race theory argument a, a few minutes ago. Uh, and the profession of realism is partly the emphasis that what, look, really politics is about power. It's not about justice. So King is a kind of a, a naive idealist, as you, as you suggested in the eyes of the black power um, argument. King's response is your profession of realism isn't really in the end realistic. Um, you know, you're pointed toward a kind of separatism which is not going to achieve the objectives that we really want to achieve. The only way to achieve those objectives is to be integrationist. And really the only way to be integrationist is to appeal to people on grounds of justice rather than power. The black power vision tended to conceive of, of American, the American um, political order as a kind of federation of racialized or ethnic groups, uh, each of which out for its own interest, each of which seeking its own power. And King wanted a much better basis for the, the kind of coalitional politics that he thought was gonna be needed to achieve the objectives that we, uh, that we want to achieve, let alone the, the kind of flamboyant rhetoric in defense of violence that you, that you mentioned. You know, King rejected that outright. He thought that was stupid and suicidal. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and all of this comes in, uh, at a moment in U.S. history when there's, you know, there, I mean, from 1964 on, there's widespread race-related rioting for about the next four years in a lot of major cities. Uh, and so, you know, King is trying to turn down the temperature of all of this. What we really don't need is more rhetoric that fans the, that fans the flames of this. And so he was objecting to the, uh, to the black power argument, partly for those reasons too.
So your argument is in response to these critics, he does not abandon his core conviction that our movement is to fulfill the founding principles of this country, which have shamefully not been fulfilled. Mm -hmm. I understand your anger, he's saying to these critics. I understand and, and sort of, as you said, are sympathetic with the idea of, of uh, African-Americans understanding their own power over their own lives but for the purposes of integration on principles of justice that, that all Americans, white, black, or any other can agree to. And that basis, that's the basis of integration, his responses to them. And that's the only way he believes that the civil rights movement is gonna succeed. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that uh, he said that the, we, we surrender the, he, 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 um, he maintains consistently forever the principle of nonviolence and the and the humanitarian universalism that you were that you were describing. If we we give up those things, uh, you know, give up the nonviolence, that's that's suicidal. Give up the the humanitarian universalism, if we want to put it this way. The idea that God is love um, entails a commitment to integration. You know, give that up, and the movement really is gonna is gonna fail very quickly. Uh, so those things, those things absolutely have to be maintained, and we can try to gather together. We can try to support bits and pieces of the Black Power argument because we want to keep the movement or make it unified. You know, we don't want these factional uh, um, divisions in it. Uh, so we want to try to heal that. But but you can't surrender the integration as, a, as you're trying to do that. And let me take the one the last point you just made there. Um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s, I know it's speculation because he's not with us. We can only take his writings and speeches and sort of apply them to what we hear people saying today. But this idea of a humanitarian universalism, that we're all God's children, as he says in the I Have a Dream speech, we're gonna, we should appeal to principles of justice that apply to everybody. We should judge people by the content of their character. For example, he says that's his dream for America in the I Have a Dream speech, while acknowledging realistically the injustices past and present that continue to affect us. Um, it's a complex argument. It's a nuanced position, right? Um, CRT as it's articulated today, or the arguments of the anti-racist um, theorists like Ibram Kendi, do they embrace that uh, humanitarian universalism that King thought was absolutely morally essential? I think that's, that's a complicated question. I think um, from what I know of reading Kendi's work, I've read both of his major books and some of his Atlantic essays. Um, Kendi speaks often in humanitarian ways, um, meaning that uh, you know, Kendi does not think that anybody is congenitally a racist or congenitally inferior to anybody else. Um, and uh, so in that way, I think when you put it at the level of ultimate vision, ultimate objectives, um, I think there's a sympathy, at least in Kendi's mind. I don't know if I wanna generalize all the way throughout uh, the whole corpus of CRT, but I think in Kendi's mind, there's a, there's a sympathy with the, the eventual or ultimate humanitarian idea. Um, having said that, I think the thing to, 
to, uh, to worry about with CRT is that there's a conflict between the ultimate objectives and the program. Uh, and what I mean by that is the simple way of putting that is that the program entails more or less a support for um, compensatory race classifications in perpetuity. I mean, not, not temporarily, but this is a complicated argument to make. So I don't know if we got time to make it right now, but, but I, think, I think when you look into what he actually has in mind policy-wise, um, uh, the implication is that such, uh, such policies are really gonna be in place permanently. And it's hard to see how if the law is classifying people by race and distributing benefits accordingly, then it's hard to see how that doesn't have a divisive effect. Um, it's hard to see how that can really unify and be consistent with the long-term objective. So King is looking for solutions in his day, and then maybe, as you're arguing, would look for solutions today that stress commonalities, common, I think interest, so. co common understanding of right and wrong, that is, is it transracial? In King's mind, yes, I, I think I think so, and I, th I think in King you can see that more clearly. Um, having you know, I'll, I'll try to elaborate that in just a second. I mean, having said that, I I do think there are points of contact between King, especially the post nineteen sixty five King um, points of contact with with critical race theory, um, but uh, but with regard to the um, well, let me let's let's make that point first, I guess. Um, I think that King would King would say that in critical race theory, there is an overemphasis on race um, that King, uh, as I, I said a few minutes ago, was um, prominently concerned with the problem of poverty post 1965. And he's well aware that there are plenty of whites who are impoverished and in tough circumstances. And he's concerned about them and he wants to, he wants to, to, try, to, to try to elevate them also. So there's a sense in which King thinks that the, the, what he regarded as inequities by social class are really the primary problem. And they tend to overlap with racial problems, but they're not identical with them. And so they need to be put more in more non-racial terms. And so I think that he would look at critical race theory uh, with its emphasis on race and say that that's an overemphasis. But having said that, like I say, there are certain points of contact. Um, uh, conservatives like to point to the dream speech and the invocation of colorblindness, the, 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 the character over color um, as the guiding principle. And that's all, that's all to the good. But King did affirm the justice of remedial race classifications. Um, and King also, he did that in, the, in his book, Why We Can't Wait, among other places. And he did later in his career suggest that socioeconomic disparities are themselves uh, indicative of, uh, of injustice, uh, often of race discrimination. And he did affirm that a just distribution of social economic outcomes would be racially proportional, I mean, in a, in a just society. 
And, and it would be, um, I mean, I say in my own voice, it would be if groups were, if the racial groups were fully integrated and assimilated with one another. But if they remain culturally distinct, um, if we insist that, uh, that people's racial identity is an important part of their racial identity, and so we insist on a certain cultural distinctness, um, then that's likely not going to yield you know, fully equal outcomes uh, because, I mean, it, because it never does across any cultural groups. Uh, and, uh, and so there's a certain tension between the vision of justice and, uh, uh, and some of these and some of the policy positions that King makes. And so I think that there's a, there's a certain equivocal quality to King's uh, profession of of colorblindness. And in the equivocal quality of it, there's a certain preparation for critical race theory. He does become in the, in the urgency of the day, you know, 1967, especially, he, he does become much more strident about American racism and about the, the, the systemic problems in the, in, in the country. And those are, those also are, uh, are points of contact. Uh, you mentioned CRT or these issues have become a large, uh, they've gone from law schools into <laughs> primary school. <laughs> yeah. And you even, you even hear in the name of, of equity, in the name of remedying um, uh, racial injustice or imbalances of power, you hear of uh, some stories uh, that of situations, for example, where school children are divided according to and classified according to race, mm -hmm. uh, this sort of thing, even within classrooms. What do you? What would King, given his emphasis on integration, what would King think about that kind of civic education for young students in school? Yeah, I, you know, I, I um, intellectual honesty compels me to say what you said a, a minute ago. I mean, it's it's hard to know these things, uh, you know, a half century or so after uh, after after King dies. But if we apply his principles in a straightforward way, I think we can come up with a reasonable conjecture. And I think the reasonable conjecture would be, he'd be pretty uncomfortable with that. Uh, I mean, I think what is being done in the, in the classroom procedures is that you're, you're identifying race with privilege or lack of privilege. And I think King would say first, just as a matter of empirical, um, analysis that's way too simple, and second, it's not helpful if if you're trying to if you're trying to unify people. Um, so I, I think at the level of principle, King would say what we really should be doing is to try to resist needless racializing. I say needless. You know, you can encounter racial bigotry, and you have to call it out when you do, but. Um, but you don't need to racialize everything. Not all differences, not all injustice is racial injustice. Not all disparate outcomes are traceable to injustice. And even the ones who are, the ones that are, are not necessarily traceable to racialized injustice. And you know, in a country with a history like we have, it can be hard to resist that temptation especially where there's some political advantage to be gained by it, which in, in, in many cases there is, but it's something we have to try to do. I, I think something like that would be, would, be King's, would be King's position. Martin Luther King looking at America today in 1963, 
it seems as though the country and even people like President Obama have said, look, the country, because of people like King, may, has ma made a lot of progress on race relations and equality from 1963 to more contemporary times. But even in 63, as we discussed, King has hope grounded, as you said, in um, this idea of a promissory note, but also in his theology and his vision of a beloved community for America. He has hope that uh, desegregation can happen, that integration can happen, that people, that people can rise above that current situation. Would he, looking at the situation today, would he have the same grounds for hope? <laughs> it's an unfair question well, I know. <laughs> uh, it's not a very helpful thing for me to say, to say, I hope so, right? Um, but I do, and I think that there'd be, I think he'd have reason uh, for such hopefulness. I think maybe a better way for me to say that is, I think his own principles and positions would support such hopefulness. I mean, I suspect that, you know, when King would see the stories that have become controversial about police misconduct or allegations of police misconduct, some of which provoke rioting and so forth, you know, this is that's an old history in the U.S. of uh, of law enforcement conflicts turning into riots. Um, that would be dispiriting to him. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, in in uh, let's say 1965 and 1966, King was complaining about the enforcement of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. But if you look at what has happened with, uh, to take the Voting Rights Act especially, and it happened really very quickly, uh, what has happened with black voter registration, black voter turnout, election of uh, public officials, black public officials to offices at all levels in American politics, that's a dramatic, dramatic change. Uh, and on the, on the social integration front, if you look at just the, uh, the, 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 the data regarding opinion and to some degree the actuality concerning um, black white intermarriage, uh, that's a sea change from what it was in, in, 19, in 1963, that uh, the, the incidence of black-white marriages is still relatively small, but it's growing rapidly and it's much larger than it was in those days. And the opinion has changed almost completely. Uh, and the public acceptability of statements of, uh, of racial bigotry was pretty high in 1963. Um, it's an instant destroyer of career and reputation now. These are very large changes in, in American public life that have taken place over a half, over a half century. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the disparities uh, in certain socioeconomic outcomes persist, and I think that King would be concerned about them. But um, he'd have to say, I think he'd have to be cheered by the degree of progress that's been made. Um, in your view, what can we take from King's thought that helps to move the country forward? What's a, what's a key insight on this Martin Luther King Day? His insight to move forward with the found, as he understood it, the founders of vision of, of liberty and equality and human flourishing. 
Well, a couple of quick things. I think uh, moving forward with the founder's vision is a complicated thing in King's mind. I'll come back to that in just a second. I mean, I think at the, at the level of principle, the first thing I think to be emphasized is, um, is to, to persist in defense of the colorblindness idea, which as you indicated at the outset is kind of under attack. I mean, by, by people professing to be anti-racist, you know, this used to be the holy grail, a colorblind society. And now that principle is under, is under attack. And I think King in his complex way would be a defender of it, you know, resist the racializing. That's, the, that's, that's one thing, that's at the principle level uh, that I said a second ago. At the level of policy, um, I think um, what King thought, two, two points here that go in kind of different directions. What King thought was that the founders' liberalism um, naturally led to progressivism, to a kind of democratic socialism, which is what he, he came to advocate in the, uh, in the later 1960s. And I think the founders would have disputed that. I think they would have said that the, the, the democratic socialism would be disjunct from their vision of classical liberalism. King thought the one led to the other. He thought, to put that a different way, that the natural rights affirmed in the founding um, kind of naturally expand into the human rights affirmed in the, the UN Universal Declaration, which includes socioeconomic rights, rights to rights related to outcomes. Um, so what has to be done in order to achieve that, if that's the real objective, would be the, the redistributive regime and the expansive government regime that King was advocating in the later 1960s, right? Now, in the opposite direction, I guess I would say this, uh, you know, so what has to be done well, to conclude that first, what has to be done to realize the vision of the founders depends on what you think the vision of the founders is. And the founders might have had a different interpretation of that from what King himself had. Um, but the other thing to say, I think, that's less commonly said is that King was a sociology major in college, and King was always a big believer in empirical social science. And what he knew of the empirical social science of his day um, was a kind of, uh, you know, uh, New Deal liberalism consensus that activist government is going to be progressive in the genuine sense of the term, promoting progress. But if we take it as a principle that, you know, King would say, what we should do then and now is learn from empirical social science. And so we should make honest empirical inquiries into what are the real sources of the disparities that still trouble us. Um, then that could, point in, that could point in different directions. And King also insisted all parties to this, you know, blacks, whites, and uh, you know, northerners, southerners, everybody has to be willing to be self-critical. You know, there has to be an honest self-examination that could be buttressed by an honest empirical inquiry into the causes of disparities. Everybody's got something to hide. Everybody's got something to make them uncomfortable in our, uh, in our race relations. And we, gotta, and we gotta face that. I mean, I think that's a, an understated part of King's legacy, but that's something that we ought to, that we ought to pay attention to. Wow, thank you very much. Um, it reminds me of the biblical verse, 
to speak the truth in love. It sounds, sounds like yeah. something Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. would have embraced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. This that's a good way to it's a good way to end. I mean, I think you know we started by by uh, you know King's King's early speech invokes Lincoln. His fifteen year old speech invokes the spirit of Lincoln. Malice toward none, charity for all um, is is King as well as it is Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Thank you very much, Peter, for taking the time to join us on this Martin Luther King Day with some really interesting and, and deep insights into his mind and how, how it sort of a, it can apply and should apply to our thinking today as we continue to face the question of how to realize uh, our principles of liberty, equality, and a just society. So thank you very much for joining us, Peter, and thank you all for taking the time to join us. You'll be sent a link um, uh, to a recording of this webinar. Please share it with your friends, with your family, with your colleagues. Uh, really deeply appreciate that. Uh, we wanna get the word out as, as far as possible and help people to enter this conversation with us about these great American ideas and arguments. Uh, for more information, if you uh, wanna know more, you can look at ashbrook.org, our website for Students and Teachers, Teaching American History, or TAH.org, wonderful resource. Also, check out our podcast, The American Idea, which has started. You can find that on any uh, podcast streaming sites or on ashbrook.org. Our next event we have coming up, um, another old friend of Ashbrook, Dr. Lucas Morell, will be with us on President's Day <laughs> to talk about Abraham Lincoln, the battle for the hearts and minds of Americans, what we can learn from Abraham Lincoln. We're gonna talk about the importance of public opinion in our country. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's really our belief at Ashbrook that when we study these great arguments and debates and documents that we can learn from the past insight that we can take for today, become a little wiser, we hope, and also renew our own understanding of our principles. And we always believe that renewing of our minds and our understanding can bring us hope. So we ask today on this day, Martin Luther King Day, you stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash American Idea Pod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AM Idea Podcast. From the Schramm Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sigmund.